This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Greg Meredith is the Chief Technology Officer at Scenario. The Scenario platform began as a decentralized social network, but out of the need for smart contracts, high scalability, and concurrent transactions, the project has become something much more than just a replacement for Facebook. Greg's work is fascinating and novel, and frankly, I don't do it justice in this interview. Interested listeners should follow up on the provided links. What led me to Scenario, however, was not the tech, but the idea that conversations about the direction of development could be conducted by users on the platform itself. This would filter the noise of open forums like Reddit and Twitter, where uninvolved parties have equal voice. The subjects of the DAO and the hard fork are tedious at this point, but I couldn't resist following this up. After we've heard from Greg, Jake Bruckman of CoinFund discusses investment in the cryptocurrency space. The CoinFund blog is one of the most insightful and impartial out there, driven by the research their team conducts. It's definitely worth a read. Additional music for today's episode was provided by Dreamer's Delight. Yeah, so I'm like a poor, stupid mathematician and musician who kind of pays for my math habit and uh, musicking by working in tech. You know, I was the, um, I did my PhD work at Imperial College under Samson Abramsky. And I kind of, I left that to go to Microsoft and build um, BizTalk, uh, BizTalk Process Orchestration, which was kind of the first internet scale of smart contracting mechanism. So that's on the whole business process modeling and the, the W3C standards like WS Choreography and Bevel and all of that. It also spawned all of the SOA stuff. So I was the principal architect for that at Microsoft. And BizTalk, you know, it was used in fairly significant, you know, high, high scale applications. And I got very excited because the mathematics that I used for BizTalk, which is called the, the mobile process calculate. And in particular, I used a, a a paradigmatic variant of that called the the uh, asynchronous pie calculus. So the mathematics that we were that was sort of at the heart of, of BizTalk process orchestration, which by the way informed both the design of the the business process modeling language, which we called Xlang, and the design of the the process orchestration's virtual machine. That uh, it's now been kind of shown that you can utilize that same mathematics to reason about biological systems. So my colleague, Corrado Priami, for example, modeled the inflammation process of uh, multiple sclerosis using the pi calculus, a stochastic version of the pi calculus, and got predictions about the inflammation process that were later confirmed in the lab. So that was very exciting to me, and I suggested that Microsoft push the tech in that direction. And when Microsoft didn't want to do that, I then went and started my own biotech startup. And then as I started sitting with a lot of biologists, I realized, oh, heck, they're drowning in data. So I have to get a content delivery, data delivery mechanism going first. And I spent a lot of time working on that and kind of morphed it into a social network as the first way to monetize it. And that's when I met uh, Door and, and together we sort of have grown a scenario into what it is today. You know, but I've never lost sight of the fact that this tech should support 
you know, not just blockchain-y kinds of things, but also the hard sciences. So that's, um, that's a little bit of my background. So, so that's, I mean, this is almost exclusively an Ethereum audience, but at the same time, there's a ton of the relationship between the users and the platform is suddenly uh, under a microscope. And this entire idea of social consensus, which has been, it's something that people kind of forgot about, right? The idea that as a collective, we agree to abide by or accept the result of the economic consensus that, that the miners come to as a determination of what is real and what is true. Whereas, in fact, that is something that we all agree to, or that we all agree to do. There is a social consensus around accepting that. And we are finding now in the Ethereum community and also in the Bitcoin community that, in fact, there is a disconnect between that economic consensus and what the users want. And so we're seeing forks beginning to, well, Ethereum is almost certainly going to fork. It's very likely, I believe, that Bitcoin will fork to escape their core dev issues. And so Scenario is this example of a platform that is built around that social consensus. And so that's something that I hope you could help me understand better. When we think about Ethereum, one of the things that Ethereum has put forward is the idea of, of contracts as programs. And the reality is that we can't know what programs do. We can't know, for example, if a program is going to stop. We also can't know if a program is going to call a subroutine, because that's equivalent to asking whether or not a program is going to stop. And so gas is not sufficient to address some of the mysteries of programs, of computer programs. We really, really don't know what they'll do. <laughs> there are ways to probe a little bit about what programs will do. There, there are ways to capture information using either formulae or types. You know, again, I, I don't know if your audience is familiar with, you know, standard languages like Java or C Sharp or something like that. So those kinds of programming languages, you know, people are familiar with, with the types that are used to, um, make sure that you don't plug the wrong thing into the wrong hole. But it turns out in the last few decades that people have been exploring new types, um, which capture more information about how the program behaves and how the program is structured. And those kinds of types can absolutely capture, for example, we showed that the type system in Rolang, which is the scenario contracting language, would have prevented the DAO bug. So that's... Um, an example of the kind of thing that we could, you can capture with types. But, but the reality is that even with these sophisticated type systems and sophisticated logics to reason about contracts, if a contract is a, a program, you can't know what it's going to do. The end of story. And since you can't know what it's going to do, you have to be able to hand agency back to human beings. Unless you want to say that the program's no better than the human beings. That's kind of where we are in stark terms. Let me just check in and, and see if that makes sense. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? You're saying that if we can't be 100% sure of what a program does, there has to be some human check in the circuit there. Yeah, exactly. And this is a really tricky area, right? I think you know there will be programs that live inside less expressive regions of the you know sort of the compute hierarchy. 
And there we can know we can know with certainty whether or not the program behaves correctly. But those are the, that's a rather small group of programs by comparison. And so since there will be programs that we don't know with certainty what they do, but we want to be able to proceed anyway, accepting some of the risk, then we have to be able to inject a human uh, say into the mix. So I believe it's always going to be a kind of uh, rich and interesting dialogue between the consensus of you know agents who are people and the consensus of agents who are programs or machines. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that we sort of understand that at a, as a foundation for moving forward, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It does. So how does Scenario take this understanding and apply it to a network that can perform many of the functions that Ethereum can? Right. Okay. So first of all, I also want to be really clear that we're moving to a different kind of blockchain. So at the outset of Scenario, I had built a decentralized content distribution network that did not have a proper monetization mechanism. And so I looked to the blockchain as providing a way to do the monetization and self-sustaining piece of the puzzle. And I realized that that was never going to work to have it side by side. Right, So Scenario 1.0 is going to come out of the box, and, and I think everyone is going to recognize that you can't have the content distribution network side by side with the monetization of the content. And there are hard technical reasons for that, but we, we kind of learned the hard way. But unfortunately, the blockchain itself is not fast enough, it's not scalable enough to put the content on top of the blockchain. Neither the Bitcoin blockchain nor the Ethereum blockchain as it stands with proof of work is fast enough and scalable enough to do that. And we kind of learned this the hard way as well. So I began working closely with Vitalik and Vlad Zamfir and others on proof of stake to look at and see if we could get to a scalable blockchain. And I think with Casper and, and a variant of the Casper work that I've been pursuing quite vigorously, we can get to a, a blockchain that's fast enough and scalable enough to put the content delivery network on top of the blockchain. So I, I know this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but I'm just trying to make sure that the context that is set properly. So the scenario architecture has at its, at its heart a blockchain that is proof of stake based, but in some sense it's not even a blockchain because the things that are being published to the chain don't have to be blocks. So I'm hoping that your listeners are aware of kind of the difference between uh, proof of work versus proof of stake. It's a pretty advanced audience. Okay, awesome. So, so then hopefully your audience has been aware of the work that's going on with Casper. Yeah. Oh, oh, fantastic. So who is this audience? Is this like... <laughs> uh, it's, uh, so, I mean, the listeners of the Ether Review are pretty exclusively hardcore Eth heads from way back. I mean, this is, I started doing it about six months ago, and I have between about, um, I have about a thousand steady listeners, and then it goes up and down kind of from between usually 1,500 to 4,000. Oh, fantastic. Oh, this, oh, great. So this is just the audience I'd love to talk to. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So in, in that case, just to picture the stack a little bit, what we're doing is a, a compositional blockchain. So the difference between sharding versus compositional 
is that sharding can be only two level, right? So you just aggregate up, you know, one one level of sharding and that's it. And if you look actually at Vitalik's proposed architecture, it's sharded, not compositional. So we're proposing a compositional architecture for the chain. And when we do the Casper consensus, rather than betting on blocks, what the validators are betting on are propositions. And the nature of these propositions are formally about the shape of the blockchain. So an example of such a formula would be that this transaction must come before that one, but all the rest of it is totally okay. Whatever else is in there, that's okay as long as as long as this property is met that this transaction happens before that one. And if you think about it, right, most clients are not going to be treading on each other most of the time. So, you know, let's say that I'm booking an airline ticket while you're ordering a taxi or buying your groceries, right? None of those transactions are going to collide with each other. And so at least in that moment, it's perfectly reasonable. You know, they would be submitted as part of a description of a transaction schedule or propositions about a transaction schedule, and there's no conflict. It's only at the point where you have conflict about, uh, say, the ordering of transactions or something like that, that you then want to invoke a Casper betting cycle. And at that point, the Casper betting cycle will find sort of the, in the blockchain architecture I'm talking about, it finds the maximally consistent subset of propositions. And when the betting cycle converges, you have a description of the blockchain structure in terms of a series of propositions about what must be the case. It must be the case. And then you can find the smallest version of that that satisfies all the propositions and then materialize the chain at that point. So what makes this scalable then is that you can potentially realize thousands of blocks at the resolution of each given betting cycle. So the fine-grained betting that goes on in um, Vitalik's proposals is replaced by a much coarser-grained thing. Well, it's finer-grained in the sense that the propositions can see into the structure of blocks in a way that can't be seen in the other one. And it's much coarser grain in the sense that you get betting cycles only at moments of conflict and most transactions won't be con in conflict. So you can do, you can get a much, much higher throughput under that organization. So we're, we have a contracting language on top of that called Rolang and Rolang will permit contracts that have fine grain concurrency. So for example, within a, with, you don't have concurrency within a single Ethereum contract. Whereas in Rolang, you absolutely have concurrency within a single contract. And again, that's supported by the, the underlying contract that we've got. And so what, what we end up having is consensus over the schedule of transactions across all the contracts that are executing within a given shard. So effectively, the blockchain becomes a kind of replication mechanism, right? And it gives you reliability uh, that then uh, scales, but you don't have to replicate all of the state because within a given shard, you only have so much activity with respect to all the transactions that are being processed globally. So hopefully that's, that's starting to, to make some sense. It's a radically different view of the role of the blockchain. So again, the scenario chain is similar to the Ethereum chain in the sense that what we're storing is the state of a kind of virtual machine. But that virtual machine natively supports concurrency and already has an understanding of how to divide up the namespace in such a way that you can reason about when 
by namespace, you might, in terms of the Ethereum or nomenclature, that would be the address space for transactions. But it divides up uh, the address or namespace in a way that it can determine when transactions are, are stomping up on each other's toes and there are require there are serialization requirements. So once you have a chain that supports a contracting language like that and a virtual machine like that, then you can start to write scalable applications. And the kind of scalable applications that we're writing include a content delivery network. So that's not the only one, but that's the first one that's important for us. And the reason that's important for us is because we're building a social network. And so we need to be able to provide a content delivery mechanism. This does sound a lot like you've built a space shuttle to cross the Atlantic. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, I hear what you're saying, except that in good faith to our investors, we attempted to you know, work out architectures that actually worked, that actually scaled to the level that we knew our users wanted to be able to scale. And every single one of our prototypes, we could see where the limits were. And you know, essentially what, what people are wanting is they want to replace Facebook. They want to replace Facebook with a decentralized service. And they want that, that Facebook to incorporate monetary transactions so that they can, you know, they can promote posts with a cryptocurrency. And so they're essentially looking for a, something that scales like Facebook scales and with transaction speeds that roughly match Visa level transactions. So from that point of view, it's not a space shuttle. It's kind of the bare minimum to actually be viable and people will come and poke and prod at the architecture and if they if they see transaction rates that don't actually match that then they're simply going to say no this isn't workable so that's why we've had to build build an architecture that can scale up to those kinds of throughput uh, and transaction rate uh, requirements so yeah i mean i I didn't believe me i didn't want to build this at all i was really hoping to use off-the-shelf blockchain technology and then when I went and did the due diligence on the existing tech, I realized it wasn't ever going to scale to the requirements that we needed and, and what we promised to our investors. Of course, that concurrency is such a major issue. I'm also trying to understand where the, uh, where the data is stored. Right. So the, the point is that the data will be stored on chain. Initially, so our, our first vision was that we would have content, you know, rich content like audio and video data would be off chain because the chain was clearly not performant to handle that. And then as we looked further and further into those kinds of architectures, we realized that this simply wasn't going to fly. It just, it won't meet all the market requirements and it won't meet, it won't meet either security requirements, nor will it meet requirements with respect to attacks on the, you know, civil style attacks on the data storage capacity of various nodes. So you actually have to force people to pay rent on storage. And once you're in this mode where you're forcing people to pay rent on storage, there's only one good solution, which is to put the data on chain, which means the chain has to be fast enough and scalable enough to handle that. So that's where, so the data is stored on chain. And that's our goal for scenario 2.0. For scenario 1.0, largely the architecture is still side by side. We have the old special K based content delivery network side by side with a blockchain. And in fact, it's just a variant of the Bitcoin blockchain. But we know that that's not viable. We know that that's not going to be a reasonable solution. However, we're continuing the 1.0 path essentially to allow people to validate the user experience. So they can play with it and we know that it's not going to be secure nor scalable, but they can play with it to say, oh yes, this makes sense as a user experience. This doesn't make sense. And we can continue to 
use that as a as a, a more focused user requirements mechanism. But the scenario 2.0 branch is absolutely going to store the data on chain so that we can charge, you know, essentially people can participate in the economic proposition of the storage. Now, the scenario architecture is a little bit different than, I guess it probably it's similar to MadeSafe with respect to storage. So one way to understand this is that the data is constantly swimming around in the network. It's not necessarily the case that just because it resides in one place at one point, it's going to remain in that place at another point. So the data moves in the network and it does so along the lines of a sort of more traditional content delivery networks. So we have an architecture whereby when data swims to hotspots, so if there's a spot that's being hit quite frequently in terms of a particular collection of data requests, then the data is more likely to end up being resident at that spot in order to serve up those requests. Now, we have to balance that against security concerns, but that's roughly the idea. Maybe one way to think about this is, so our notion of address space is not like, you know, Ethereum addresses. Our notion of address space is the addresses themselves are, are um, they're not finite in size. They can grow like, like URLs. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but if you use a URL as kind of a guiding, a guiding principle, then it becomes a lot more like the web or maybe something like IPFS where you use, there's a, the, the content addressing scheme is path-like and the path allows you to get to data that's distributed around the nodes, right? And again, by following the path, you can assemble the data. It's not necessarily that all the data all for a particular request all lives at one particular node. Okay, yeah, that is beginning to make a lot more sense. Cool, cool. That's, <laughs> that's good, that's good. This is radical. This is, this is totally alien to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of backed into all of this. I mean, I wasn't really... I was basically just following the math, right? And the market requirements. <laughs> you know, I, I, I feel kind of innocent of whether it's, you know, accepted practice or not. I'm just like, you know, all we've been doing is like, okay, the market needs, market needs and wants this, you know, how does the math work out so we can give them that, right? And we kind of back into the architecture that will provide that at scale. So whether it's radical or not, I don't know. All I know is that, you know, it's kind of dictated by the math. Uh, so that's, that's, and that's kind of the position that we've been taking all along is we just, we follow the math as much as we can. So how do you see blockchains like Scenario and like Ethereum's and Bitcoins coexisting? Uh, well, I think, I mean, I think the space is really at the very, very beginning and the, we're going to see lots and lots of, of different variations on these themes. So I'm actually really excited. I mean, the way, the way I think about it like this is, you know how when the World Wide Web first came out, you know, and people looked at HTTP, and HTTP is like one of the stupidest protocols ever, right? I mean, it, there's no way HTTP could have been invented by a computer scientist. It had to be invented by a physicist who was naive of best practices. But it turned out to be just stupid enough, right? It was so stupid that people would punch holes in firewalls because they could see what the protocol was doing and they realized it wasn't going to be too terrible. But of course, as soon as people wanted to use HTTP at scale, then they had to add session state, right? 
which scattered cookie crumbs all over the internet. And that's that, you know, that's sort of, I think that's the way technology happens. So something very similar happened with proof of work. Proof of work is a really radical idea. It's not scalable, but what it does do is it, the value of proof of work is that it is pedagogical. It opens people's eyes to new forms of consensus mechanisms and slightly different sets of priorities with respect to consensus algorithms. Like, you know, proof of work and Paxos have really, really different ideas about, you know, what is the role, nature, and function of consensus. And so even though proof of work doesn't scale, it shakes people up and wakes them up to the possibility of, of decentralization and a consensus that works for decentralization. And so then proof of stake comes along and improves upon that. And what you store on the blockchain, right, that also gets improved, right? So Bitcoin comes along and says, well, let's just store a ledger. And that was a clever idea. It's a good idea to store, to store a ledger because now you can enable digital currency. And then Ethereum comes along and says, well, instead of storing a ledger, let's store the state of a virtual machine instead. And that's a very clever idea. And I think we're just going to continue to have these slight improvements. I mean, I think the scenario thing is just looking at, looking at Ethereum and going, I think you got it mostly right. You just, you know, you don't have all of, you know, the last 30 years of research in language design and virtual machine at your fingertips. And so by tweaking it just this much, we can get it to actually scale, right? I mean, that, that's all that's going on is like these kind of little incremental improvements. And I think probably someone will come along and build something that far surpasses scenario and, and maybe only within, you know, a few years. But so I, I'm really seeing this as a vibrant ecosystem. And I think we have to get along together side by side and learn from each other's mistakes. And the, I kind of take the long view here because if we don't pull this off, if we, those folks who are interested in decentralization, don't pull this off, you know, we are facing much, much worse problems. You know, if you're paying attention to the climate data, you should be scared. And I don't think we're going to have the right kind of necessary planetary response to what's happening around us in a, a social environment in which the 0.1% own most of everything. And there's a, a similarly a kind of privacy imbalance in which, you know, a small handful of companies own most of people's personal data. That isn't going to fly in general, but for a fact, it, it isn't going to fly when the problems that we're facing are so complex and hard they need us all pulling together. So I think the first step in, in terms of building a, an infrastructure that is going to allow us to work together is the decentralization movement, right? The, the decentralization needs to succeed. And so we're kind of all in this together. Either we succeed together or we have much, much bigger problems to solve. And so, you know, I'm super, super happy to engage with Vitalik and Vlad and and everybody else in the space, Peter, Todd, whoever wants to talk, to get to workable, scalable algorithms. And hey, if someone comes along and has a better approach than the architecture that I've outlined for scenario, I'm all ears. And if someone comes along with a better, more practical, more scalable blockchain, scenario would use it in a heartbeat, right? You know, our aim is to build a platform, you know, a social network platform that can grow up to be a self-determination platform. So that's how I think we have to play together. You know, it's like, a, what is that Patrick Henry quote? We, we must all hang together or surely we will all hang separately. <laughs> you know, I, I genuinely feel that's kind of where we are right now. And hey, it's kind of a fun and exciting time to be because this is some of the hardest technology work I have ever done. 
It involves more interesting and, and exciting maths and, and at, a, at a much higher scale than I've done in a very long time. And this is kind of where, you know, let's tie it back to your original question, because you were really asking, you know, how do we see the social network part of it, the human factor playing into consensus? Well, I'm not going to say that I think we have, you know, we have everything ironed out, right? I mean, I, I don't think that we scenario at this point is in any way, shape or form suggesting that our economy models feed directly into whether a chain forks, but it helps the conversation. It helps lay in the groundwork as a part of the system, right? So the system is, is now able to talk about itself, right? And once the system can talk about itself, then you've got kind of the, 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 the ground foundation to begin to have social processes that are interacting with the, the processes managed by smart contracts. I see, as opposed to having something that is automatically somehow you know a bunch of people have this voting mechanism and that and that that decides the forking behavior now I, we're we're not at that point and i don't think we should be at that point right i mean my sense of it is that is that you know like we learned a lot from the dow right that was a very interesting experience and it was kind of one of the best ways that a disaster could happen right because it wasn't actually a disaster we had the breathing room to rectify it uh, so Kudos to Christoph, actually, for that. Yeah, yeah. Kudos to the whole community, I think, that, you know, that the response was sane and rational, and there was a lot of vigorous and good debate. And and I, and kind of, I think all the scenario is, is really saying is that wouldn't it be nice if that vigorous debate were folded into the mechanism? <laughs> Right. That that was, it was a, the vigorous debate about what to do were folded into the mechanism and on chain, as it were. As opposed to having to transcend that, that system of consensus. That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. So that's kind of what we believe is sort of step zero. And, you know, out past step zero, well, I'm kind of excited. I think there are going to be a lot of different ideas as, as to what happens out past step zero. And I'm, I'm keen to participate in that discussion. <laughs> so are there any links that you'd, uh, you'd like to share with the audience for further reading, et cetera? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, there's certainly, you know, www.scenario.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-E-O.com. You know, like in terms of the, uh, like we have a draft of a paper about the Dow bug, but I can't really say the link out loud because it's, you know, it's on Google Docs, <laughs> you know, it gives one of these long, mindless links that nobody ever looks at. They just click on. Are you guys on Twitter? We are. Yeah, absolutely. We're on Twitter. We're, our Slack channel is scenarionet.slack.com. And if people want to come to the scenario discussion, then they should join that the Slack channel. Hey, fantastic. That's perfect. That's all I needed. Awesome. <laughs> just got to get that in there. Cool. All right. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Ciao. Jake Brookman is the co-founder of CoinFund, a cryptocurrency investment vehicle. Thanks for joining me, Jake. Would you mind explaining what CoinFund is and, and what initiatives you guys have going on right now? Hi, thank you, Arthur, for having me. So CoinFund actually started as a private portfolio of Bitcoin that I was holding back in 2013. 
And about a year ago, I realized that given the proliferation of cryptocurrencies out there, it just made a lot of sense to diversify such a portfolio. And so we wrote a white paper about CoinFund and how to structure such a portfolio, how to diversify it, and what kind of vehicles to invest in. And now a year later, we are an official legal entity, which is a proprietary investment vehicle dealing exclusively in crypto assets. And additionally, we do a ton of research on the blockchain technology space. So we look at all kinds of different blockchains, we read the white papers, we review the code, and we also try to analyze them from the standpoint of you know, technology startups that are operating in the real world and real markets. In addition to that, we've, uh, this year, we've opened up a, a public community where people can just come together, interact with us, look at the different investments that are out in the market, and you know, try to make good investment decisions along with us. Okay, so you're both an investment vehicle and a research outfit. So I suppose research is necessarily part of investment, but what is the legality of investing in CoinFund? I mean, what, how have you got around the question of uh, issuing securities and that kind of thing? And, and then after that, I'd, I'd like to hear more about your research. Yeah, so I spent, you know, when I came into this, I was more or less a, a, just a pure technologist and I had like really no idea about securities law. So I spent a, a good amount of time talking with lawyers and trying to figure out what would be the appropriate legal structure for something like this. I think at the end of the day, we realized that the easiest thing to get off the ground and kind of just test out our investment idea would just be in the form of a private LLC. And so we structured a, basically a limited partnership. We have eight members today. It is not a private offering. It is not, we're not selling securities. All of our members are you know, active participants in the investment. They're either uh, partners in the company or very valuable advisors that come from diverse areas like technology or finance. And therefore, you know, we are exempted from SEC registration. However, you know, looking forward, you know, probably the next step for us would be to open an investment vehicle for external investments, like a, basically a hedge fund. And in that case, we would have to do a private offering. And so can you tell me a little bit about the research that you guys do and what form it takes and how you measure the potential future value of or financial value of some of these crypto assets? So, um, you know, fundamentally... I think a responsible way to invest in the blockchain space is definitely to diversify across blockchains. And one of the reasons is that every blockchain carries its own systemic risk. Like if that blockchain goes down, you know, that particular investment goes down and all of the tokens, like in the case of Ethereum, would probably suffer from that. So one of the important aspects of diversifying such a portfolio is to really have to consider all of the possible blockchain opportunities out there. And um, if you talk to VCs, VCs coming from a traditional kind of startup investment background, they'll look at you know, the cryptocurrency market caps. And one of their fundamental questions will be, you know, are these things, do we see fragmentation in this market? Or is it just that Bitcoin and Ether you know, have most of the value and most of the risk lies there? And I think what we're going to see in the future is indeed a large degree of fragmentation, therefore, you know, enabling diversified portfolios. Diversification across blockchains is kind of the first principle. And what that 
encourages a savvy investor, I think, to do is to kind of get away from the mentality that one particular coin or one particular blockchain is going to be the product. Now, how we see the value in particular of blockchains or projects is, you know, you started the technology. You know, we have a rule that if we can't read a white paper for a project or if we can't see open source code for a project, that is a really, really negative sign. You know, we start there. Does the technology do what it says and claims that it will do? Um, and we're able to verify it. And then you also have to approach from the other side. You know, when this technology comes out into the market and is going to be competing with real world markets and companies, is it going to do well? So one really simple example is this great startup that we've been following for the better part of a year. It's called Saya. It's a decentralized storage application, which on the consumer end really competes with S3, Amazon S3, as a storage provider. And, you know, the value proposition there is that they're going to do it much, much more cheaply than Amazon. So we think that that is a great value proposition when you're forward looking and looking at actual markets, rather than someone just saying, oh, we're going to release a coin. It's going to have slightly modified properties from Bitcoin, but largely will be the same, will have speculative value, and will have very little fundamentals. We look for projects that add you know, specific value propositions to real world applications, and also that innovate on the technology, for example, like anonymous coins and so on. So you mentioned uh, Sire. What are your thoughts on Storage, Storage A? Yeah, so um, recently, David Vorick, who is the co-founder of Sai, he had a great talk at the MIT Bitcoin Expo 2016, where he, you know, what, this is the first question that comes from audience members, is how are you guys different? And I think there are a couple of points of difference there. I think, you know, externally looking, you see that storage is much, much better marketed. They currently have a larger network. Their website looks great and, you know, everything works. Whereas Saya has really focused on the integrity of the code, really the backend technologies, and has given much less attention so far to marketing. But they're launching their production version on the 28th of June. So we're very excited to see you know, how that plays out. If you ask David, I think he would say protocol level, Saya does a slightly better job of kind of incentivizing its network to store files whereas storage has a different scheme from that. And, you know, in his opinion, it is weaker. So could you please tell us a bit more about the research you do and what kind of information you guys make available to the public and what your strategy in that realm is? Sure. So kind of one of our fundamental public uh, contributions to this space is that we publish a blog called the Blockchain Investments Blog. You can find that at blog.coinfund.io. And what we try to do is we try to have a good, healthy mix of basically like quantitative analysis on particular assets or kind of reviewing in a forward-looking way products and their prospects, but also, you know, very theoretically reasoning about, you know, what are the social implications of having blockchains that, for example, don't have ethical rules built in, or as we just recently saw with the DAO, you know, that create these large economic pressures for bad things to happen. So as a quick example, I think one of our most popular articles is something called a say in valuation of rep tokens. So there was a point a couple of months ago where, you know, the pre-release trading of rep tokens was really getting very, very exuberant. I think it was reaching the $10 range or something like that. 
And you know, it's very interesting with these kinds of crypto assets because if you understand their relationship to the platform very clearly, then that allows you to mathematically almost model, you know, their price. In the case of rep tokens, you can model rep tokens as a dividend paying security. And given that the dividends are kind of proportional to the turnover on the platform, you can actually use like existing known financial mathematics to sort of model what the correct lower bound price should be. And that's what we did. We got the attention of the Augur team, including their investor, Ron Bernstein, who reached out to us after that article. And we actually saw the price of rep come down. I don't want to you know, take credit for, uh, <laughs> for, for bursting that temporary bubble, but you know, it's really great to think about how does adoption of a platform like Augur actually translate into price? And is the price that we're seeing kind of being traded over the counter a reasonable price for that asset? That's one example. And another example, we just published yesterday some notes on the economics of Plutons, which are the crypto asset of this contactless payment platform where you can spend Ether, Bitcoin, and some other cryptocurrencies from your phone in the same way that you pay with Apple Pay. So this question is a little bit obsolete now, Jake, but could you please explain this idea of Yench radiation and arbitrage opportunities that existed before the DAO hack? So before the hack occurred, we actually published on this arbitrage opportunity that we saw in the DAO. And basically what was happening was that DAO tokens were being traded at a discount on the markets. And yet, you know, one could purchase up these DAO tokens and then split from the DAO, collect the underlying Ether and get an Ether sort of premium, right? Now, some people have argued, like Amin Gunsire argued, that that's not actually arbitrage because, you know, the US dollar fluctuation during that 48-day period where you would split actually might end up in a loss for you. And so, you know, I think, first of all, in the context of kind of a long-term, long-only fund like CoinFund, that would actually make sense. Hey, if we can get, quote-unquote, free Ether, that makes a lot of sense for us. Second of all, you could actually, at the moment that you buy these DAO tokens, you could actually short Ether at the same time, become, you know, Ether neutral. And so some of the arguments now have been that the 10% spread, up to 10% spread that you saw in these tokens, was actually symptomatic of technological complexity associated with, you know, splitting from the DAO, people willing to pay for the convenience of not having to do that. But also some people are saying that it was like a predictor of, you know, the future hack, the future hacking risk. I actually think that that's probably not, not completely true. Like the feedback from our community has been that, you know, if you look back into traditional finance and you look at closed end funds, which are just um, kind of like investment companies that have IPO'd and have tickers on the stock market, they often trade at a, at a 10% discount. I think the example was like JFR, a fund that has a great manager, is fairly stable, and yet you still see the, you know, the discount there. We published on the arbitrage. We, we actually, I think we saw it as a bug, right? It's a term that we came up with called Yench radiation, which is the idea that as long as that arbitrage opportunity exists, then people who are incentivized to perform that arbitrage will have to keep cleaving little pieces out of the DAO. 
And so, you know, if that process goes on indefinitely, the DAO will just eventually leak out all of its ether. This is, of course, before proposals have been passed. Now that the hack has happened, you see an even greater spread in DAO tokens. I think last night it was about 25%. You know, I'm not sure that I could recommend buying it because there's just so much uncertainty about exactly what will happen with the ether. And there's so many events going on. As uh, Amin Gunsire referred to it last night at his talk at, um, at Cornell Tech, it's core wars. It's when people build computer programs to kind of fight each other. And it seems to be what's happening between the hackers and you know, the Ethereum side right now. So what opportunities do you see moving forward with crypto investment? And how do you see the crypto investment space evolving? Also, how do you neutralize the volatility of these portfolios? Do you have some strategy for achieving that? Basically, you know, our approach to handling the volatility of the space has been diversification. So for people who are holding cryptocurrency portfolios, I would say, you know, invest in different blockchains, look at uh, different projects that are out there that have potential. Come talk with us if you want to hear about interesting stuff that's going on. And, you know, up until this point, one of the major ways that we've been approaching volatility, and especially Bitcoin exposure, is that we actually have a very, very small allocation to Bitcoin. We actually participate in upward movements of Bitcoin by holding a bunch of different altcoins. And so when Bitcoin makes really strong upward movements, we actually do see profit from that. But then on the other hand, we're hedging against the technological risk and the scaling risks and the halving risks that are kind of systemically inherent in the Bitcoin investment. And so we also hold a large percentage of our portfolio in Ether. And historically, what we have seen is that there is a very consistent negative correlation between Ether and Bitcoin. So when Bitcoin goes down, Ether goes up. That regime has actually changed in the last week and a half or so. For some reason, Ether and Bitcoin started going up together. So one of the, you know, in thinking about how to present such an investment vehicle to kind of traditional investors, I'm thinking like, you know, high net worth individuals who are used to investing in hedge funds, small to medium VCs, volatility of this space is definitely a challenge. It is probably the major gap that scares off that kind of investor. And we do have, you know, exceptionally high volatility, really, like if we're honest today, but it's sort of like in, uh, inherent in this kind of portfolio right now. I think in the future, we're going to have a lot of initiatives where we do a lot more quantitative analysis than we do today, figure out how, you know, we can buy various cryptocurrency instruments that mitigate that volatility and tailor it to the needs of a, you know, prospective client or something like that. The other interesting thing is like you should always you should always look at the autocorrelation uh, of the returns of, of your fund. You see, if you have a large volatility in a fund, from an investor perspective, they would be afraid that like, hey, if you have a lot of losses in a row, you know, you, you can very quickly go bankrupt. If you can show that your uh, if your returns autocorrelation is actually quite negative, in other words. Your fund goes up and then goes down and then goes up and then goes down is kind of unlikely to have multiple losses. So what do you feel the, the long-term effects on the cryptocurrency ecosystem of the hard fork decision may be regarding the Dow incident? So my personal opinion, and I think I share that with a number of people in the community, is that you know, at the end of the day, 
blockchains implement a technological consensus mechanism, but they ultimately have to defer to a social consensus mechanism, right? So in other words, like whatever nodes people socially agree to run, you know, that is the technological consensus that will define the system. And it's really an extension, a formalization of that social consensus that's there to begin with. And so in that light, you know, you can argue that hard forks are actually a legitimate way, especially in the early stages of projects like Ethereum is today, to deal with catastrophic events. And if you kind of run with that idea and think about it a little bit more, a system which provides recourses when something goes catastrophically wrong or, you know, is a, has huge deterrence to hackers because the hackers know that if they orchestrate some kind of large heist, you know, they run the risk of being hard forked out of the system. I think that actually at the end of the day, those are stronger blockchain systems than just pure technological consensus systems and systems that, you know, subscribe to the ideology of code is law. And if you look at kind of the projects that are out there, they're actually projects. I'm thinking Tezos, which formalizes the concept of hard forking and makes that a protocol level feature. So in other words, if you read the Tezos white paper, they provide a mechanism where social consensus can then be used to formally, as part of the framework, as part of the protocol, modify the actual consensus, which is technological. And so I think that's a very interesting idea to explore. It formalizes this idea of hard forking and makes it like, you know, within that ecosystem sort of okay. And I think that's a tremendously important experiment to see if that kind of system could work. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.